Hello, and welcome to episode two of a two-part psychedelic trip, so to speak. <laughs> My name is Ben. This is Josh. We are Chapters, the SIU Student History Podcast. This is our second episode of Brock Renshaw, our local undergraduate historian's research into psychedelic drugs and the history of their use as both medicinal and recreational items. Josh, what are you Hello. looking forward oh. to? Oh, what am I? What, <laughs> sorry, what are you ben, looking I... forward to in part two? <laughs> um, hey, I mean, we're starting off pretty good. We're about to hear from uh, someone that uh, many of you might know. Um, it's not Brock or any of us. It's actually someone from the past. Um, I mean, hey, Brock gets into some really interesting stuff here. I don't want to spoil too much, but uh, a lot of interesting stuff about... Um, kind of almost modern research now into psychedelics. But like I said, I don't want to spoil that trip for you guys. Yes, and of course, this is part two of the two-part series. So make sure if you haven't already, go back and listen to part one where Brock talks about the origins of LSD, the origins of psychedelics, their rediscovery, and their use as both medicinal and medical or uh, recreational drugs in the 1930s through the 1960s. With that being said, let's jump in to the 1960s and 1970s. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at 8 o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive. Okay, so Brock, we have this Controlled Substance Act in place now. What what did all that entail? So basically what the act did, it's categorized drugs into five schedules or classifications. And what it did is put substances into those certain classifications based on the qualifications of the schedules. So for instance, schedule one is the most severe schedule of substances. And to be put into that schedule, it's listed as uh, the substance, quote, has no medical use, being unsafe to use even under medical supervision, and has the highest potential for abuse. And so that's what Schedule 1 is. And all the other schedules going down to number 5 kind of follow suit, but the exception is they have medical use. So those below Schedule 1 have some of a medical use, then Schedule 3 has more, Schedule 4 even more so, number 5 definite. And uh, as far as abuse goes, that's just how they lined it up. With Schedule 1, those drugs can be abused the most and the easiest and have the most potential to be abused. Schedule 2, not as much as Schedule 1, but still are highly abused. Schedule 3, Schedule 4, Schedule 5, so on and so forth. Uh, So that's how they scheduled it out. And the drugs that were put in to Schedule 1, that means no medical use and have high potential of abuse. Uh, Some of those that were put in were LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, peyote, marijuana, 
DMT, and heroin, I believe. Those were the first implemented into Schedule 1. And then on Schedule 2, you have you know, your prescribed medicines, those that can be prescribed by a doctor, stimulants, and you also have the illegal kinds like methamphetamine, cocaine, uh, and other thing, other stimulants of that nature. And then, you know, number three being antidepressants, uh, other scheduled drugs, and then going down the line like so. So there is a little bit of a positive side to the Controlled Substance Act in that it provides rehabilitation programs, treatment and drug abuse education, uh, it revises federal narcotic laws, and it revises penalties to those said laws, and then it it provides uh, enforcement tools to those laws. And it also created the FDA and the DEA. Uh, the FDA being the Food Drug Administration, DEA being Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, so those were birthed from the Controlled Substance Act, uh, and it was separated into different titles. Uh, and basically, the goal of the Controlled Substance Act was to unify all the other acts beforehand that were put into place in the government and just kind of unify them all under one act with the main thesis of combating drug abuse. That, so that was the main goal of the Congress, was legislation that combats the problem of drug abuse in our society. And so the bill went to the House. There was debate on the floor. There was pushback to this act a little bit. Not as much as you'd think, but there was. Uh, For example, there was a Dr. Jonathan Cole. He was the chairman uh, for the Committee of Effective Drug Abuse, and he was speaking to the House on behalf of the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology. And basically what he didn't like about the act is how it put scientific restrictions on those who were in the medical field. And so it made it nearly impossible for uh, medical researchers researchers to do any kind of programs or any kind of studies as they were doing before with psychedelic substances and other drugs. Uh, And he also didn't like how marijuana was put into Schedule 1 whenever heroin was put into Schedule 1 as well. (laughs) And that's a symbiotic argument with why were psychedelics put into Schedule 1 when it was proven that they have medical use? Well, the counter argument was that they were being abused significantly by the general public during the 1960s. And so they had to be Schedule 1 because they were abused so much uh, despite their medical benefits. And there was also a uh, Dr. Goddard who uh, he was on the uh, Bureau of Narcotics and he thought they, that they also put unnecessary restrictions on doctors. But to rebuttal... <laughs> somebody who was for the Controlled Substance Act and uh, right alongside President Nixon in this anti-drug campaign was the Attorney General, John N. Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And he was he was all for the act. He, he liked it. And basically his understanding was that it fought drug abuse to its core. It, it, it went after every single drug that was that was in society at the time and it provided clauses to amend it to add future drugs into it. Like Xanax, for example, is in uh, Schedule 3, I believe. And so that got implemented into the the act itself later on. 
But uh, the attorney general, John Mitchell, was very much for this uh, this new this new controlled substance act. But then again, we have a another director of a government agency, uh, John E. Ingersoll, who worked alongside Dr. Goddard in the Bureau of Narcotics. He didn't like how the government was placing drugs into schedules without any prior knowledge or uh, advisement from medical supervisors or medical uh, those in the medical field who knew about these drugs. So really no like professional doctors were consulted on the, the making of the laws. They just kind of picked and choose what they wanted to right. hear. There, there was debate as like I said, like the Dr. Jonathan Cole came in and debated it, uh, but they had their own agency, the HEW, the Health mm-hmm. Education Welfare Program. They, uh, through the act, gained all research of drugs and were able to categorize them, which is under direct control of the attorney general, right. which was John Mitchell. And so they got to have the ability to categorize what drugs go on what schedules, pretty much based on their own knowledge, which wasn't comprehensive of all the studies done beforehand in the 50s showing the medical benefits of psychedelics. <laughs> and, and keep in mind, this, this act was over a broad scope. It wasn't directed at psychedelics, but psychedelics was pulled into it because it was a drug that was abused recreationally. And so their whole mind frame is how do we combat drug abuse? We have to do that under one single act in psychedelic drugs are abused, so they have to fall into that category. And so that's what pretty much made the Controlled Substance Act, uh, the specifics of it, with all the titles and regulations. Uh, So it was put to a vote in the House. Uh, It was a 341 to 6 roll call vote in the House. And so it went on to the Senate. And the Senate was, the Senate vote was unanimously passed. I believe it was 54 to zero roll call votes. And then later on, a few amendments were thrown in there and it was another unanimous roll call vote. Uh, But basically the House bill that was approved was more of attack on the drug problem. What the Senate did with the House bill is they added a few amendments for law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So they approved of the bill, but then they added a few amendments for the enforcement of the bill for uh, the police and everything because there was a policy stated called the no-knock provision that was in place before the Controlled Substance Act, uh, which means the law officer had to knock on the house door where they thought drugs were being made, and that gave the the subject time to dispose of said drugs. But with the provision the Senate provided, the amendment, uh, they got rid of that no-knock provision and were able just to enter the premises of where they believed drugs were being manufactured. Uh, So the Senate passed the bill and it became law and it was effective on May 9th, 1971 when Nixon signed it. So Brock, after this bill's passed into the the 70s and the 80s, obviously recreational use of drugs continued. Uh, Nowadays, the big big scare is heroin. Uh, What steps were taken to kind of disassociate psychedelics from the more addictive substances such as cocaine and and heroin. Yeah, so uh, you know psychedelics get banned along with many other drugs, uh, but then 
something happens within the 1990s and early 2000s, more academic interests and scientific studies in psychedelic research began to trickle forth. Uh, And psychiatrists and activists alike were now trying to start up again a psychedelic renaissance. And one of the first steps, actually the first step into what is now a psychedelic renaissance in our modern society was the uh, work of Dr. Rick Straussman. Now, Dr. Rick Straussman was a professor and psychiatrist working at the University of New Mexico. And he had a breakthrough in 1990. He was very interested in psychedelics and studied their history, and he wanted to get approved for further research. And it was the first time the FDA approved research on healthy human subjects since psychedelics were banned. Uh, And the substance he was using for these studies and uh, trials was DMT. Uh, And the reason why these got approved by the FDA was pretty much because of how obscure DMT was to government officials and the general public alike. Not very many people knew about the substance. It wasn't one of the ones that were really talked about during the 1960s. It was mostly psilocybin and LSD. But here we have a tryptamine compound known as DMT, and it's a very interesting psychedelic, actually. There are traces of DMT in our own human bodies, actually. It's a naturally occurring thing, and we can find it in animals, we can find it in nature, we can find it in our own bodies. It's produced in our, I believe, our kidneys and also in our brains. So this fascinated Strasman, and he decided to use DMT as the perfect psychedelic to do further testing on. So Dr. Rick Strasman's studies concluded in 1995, and he contends that there are no physiological benefits to taking DMT, nor negative physiological effects to taking DMT as well. Rather, the set and setting in which DMT and other psychedelics is taken by the individual is far more important uh, due to the results showing that all the participants in Strasman's study had a mystical or spiritual experience that impacted them profoundly. And by set and setting, that just simply, simply means frame of mind when the psychedelic experience happens and setting of the environment in which you're in, uh, and which is you know, very important whenever clinical trials are used with psychedelics because you want the subject to feel completely comfortable uh, and open and not apprehensive to his, his or her environment uh, and not have any mental negative thoughts associated with it. So it's, it's a very important rule whenever you're going and testing these, psyched, using psychedelics as uh, testing on patients. Uh, set and setting is very vital to many psychiatrists and psychologists. So Dr. Strausman's studies wasn't necessarily a huge breakthrough in the field of science. It was more so a breakthrough in getting more research done within the medical field with psychedelic drugs. Uh, I mean, it, it's contended that DMT is a very special tryptamine. Uh, a lot of people will even argue that DMT, its history is 
coincides with human history and the history of religion itself. A lot of people think that DMT is what birthed religion uh, because whenever one takes DMT, they experience a very spiritual environment within themselves and appear to be in a totally different mind state, a totally different consciousness than uh, any other kind of substance would do to the subject's mind. Uh, but what happened with Dr. Rick Strassman's studies led to now modern day studies because it opened that door that it is possible to get funding and FDA approval for psychedelic research in this, in this modern era. And Dr. Strausman to this day is, is still an advocate of, of greater research, is he not? Yes, he is. He's uh, he's still researching DMT and other psychedelics. Uh, he actually has a documentary uh, with the same title as his book, uh, DMT, The Spirit Mo- Molecule, which is a great book and also a, a great documentary. If you ever have more interest in the uh, substance DMT itself, you should look up one of those two uh, sources. They're very, very enlightening. So this renaissance and rebirth really isn't isn't asking for uh, legalization on the same scale of like say marijuana in some states, uh, including the one that we are in now. More they they're advocating for a controlled further study because this could possibly have medical benefits, right? Absolutely, yeah. Nobody has really in you know the modern day since been advocating for recreational use because if you study these substances enough you begin to understand that these aren't for everybody. And people were absolutely right back in the 20th century when they said that taking these recreationally with no education and no guidance is a very dangerous and foolish thing to do. You you really need to know what you're getting yourself into. And the fact that, you know, professional psychiatrists, scientists, and psychologists who know what they're doing, know what these substances do, and the effect that they can have on people uh, would be in charge of appropriating these substances to people who need it is the best way for these to be implemented in our society. They, they still believe that the, the medical benefits that it showed in the 20th century are still present in today. And it is, it's very evident that that is true. Uh, there have been numerous studies since Dr. Rick Strausman's research program. I mean, hundreds and maybe even thousands since the 90s uh, have now come forth showing all the positive results as it did in the 20th century with treatment to mental health issues as depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and other disorders of that nature. <laughs> So I want to I want to kind of bring us full circle now in the modern era. We we started with Dr. Hoffman from Switzerland, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what what impact has this had worldwide? We've we've really been focused on the United States. Uh, is is there any other nations that are taking a look at this? Are are, are things coming along in other places of the of the world? Yeah. Uh- I mean, there are a lot of different policies in different countries in the world. I mean, South America probably has the most open policies with regards to psychedelic substances, as in uh, psilocybin is widely used and legal in a lot of South American countries. Uh, Ayahuasca, which is a blend of a type of vine, some certain leaves and other additives, so they're all naturally occurring alkaloids, uh, when all these substances are blended together into a brew, it creates DMT. 
and it produces a psychedelic effect whenever you drink it, which is a very prominent substance in South American culture, and it has a very long history along the Amazon. And a lot of the psychedelic substances are illegal in South America, but uh, going into other parts of the world, uh, not as much. I mean, Australia is very strict. They have no uh, legal regulations or even medical practices with regards to psychedelic substances. Uh, it's, it's growing a little bit, but in Australia, there's still very harsh regulations against them. In Europe, uh, you see a little bit more coming in. As, I mean, specifically the Netherlands. Uh, they have very laxed drug laws uh, and very lax psychedelic substance drug laws. Uh, more research is being done over there. Uh, University of Oxford in England uh, continues to do research on psychedelic substances, even though they're still widely banned. Uh, so each country has a little bit of a different policy than the other which is a big change uh, because, you know, back in the 70s with the Controlled Substance Act being implemented in the United States, there was also a, a convention, a, a psychotropic convention held by the UN in 1971 that kind of was a meeting to establish world countries being in line for combating drug abuse. So they were all in line for being against psychedelic substances and other drugs. Uh, but now we see kind of a separation from that, and each country has been establishing their own regulations and policies, even though some still uphold the ones from uh, the 1970s. So, Brock, in the last decade, has there been any progress? Is there any prominent people within the movement advocating for this or against it, for that matter? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we still see a lot of politicians that have anti-drug stances. I mean, Joe Biden, for example, came out recently still against marijuana use, uh, which, I mean, can lead one to believe that he is also against any kind of other drug regulations, including psychedelics. Uh, but for those who are advocating for psychedelic use in the medical field, uh, most notably Rick Doblin, who is a founder of the organization called MAPS, which stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And that organization has been tremendous in their efforts to get funding and approval for uh, researching psychedelics. And Doblin himself has headed many of the, the studies. Uh, I mean, he's, he's incorporated MDMA, which is better known as ecstasy, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't considered a classic psychedelic. But in a clinical setting, it allows the subject to talk through their trauma or painful experiences freely, uh, much like psychedelics do for patients who have experienced trauma. Uh, and he also has been studying LSD, uh, incorporating it into therapeutic methods and uh, other various studies for treating depression and anxiety, uh, psilocybin has been a big use to Rick Doblin. Uh, and then apart from him, we also have a lot of authors writing about this. Uh, one specifically is Michael Pollan, who is a nutritionist. Uh, he's very well known, has written several books. Uh, he recently came out with a book called How to Change Your Mind, uh, in which he talks about the history of psychedelic drugs. It's, his, it's a fantastic book. And apart from him, 
there uh, is a notable man named Roland Griffiths, who is a, a psychiatrist and professor at John Hopkins University. Uh, he, alongside a, a man named Bob Jesse, have carried out several, several studies through the university uh, with psilocybin and how it treats mental issues like depression and anxiety, OCD, and uh, nicotine addiction as well. And their results have been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, and lastly, there's a man named Charles Grob who works at the UCLA Medical Center, and he's carried out several studies involving psilocybin and LSD as well uh, for treating mental disorders. John Hopkins and UCLA Medicine, that's, that's some pretty top-notch places that these studies are coming from. Yeah, and uh, even Yale has been uh, providing some studies, uh, and a lot of times these universities are looking at you know the mental issues and mental disorders treatments, but they're also treating cancer patients. Now they're not treating cancer patients to cure the cancer itself, but they're looking at the terminally ill cancer patients, mm -hmm. and. Uh, whenever they treat these people with psychedelic drugs, they've been seeing an enhancement of uh, empathy and a relief in the fact that they're terminally ill. Uh, there's a great Netflix show called The Mind Explained in which one of the episodes talks about psychedelics and there's a, uh, a man who was terminally ill with cancer who's on the show and he talks about how he went through a clinical trial of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy Mm -hmm. and how pretty much his anxiety and fear of death vanished away after his trial with psilocybin. And always, you know, as a terminally ill patient, you go back to the doctor and see if the cancer has come back or if it's even worse than before. And he said before he took psilocybin that he was <laughs> tremendously anxious and afraid before each one of those appointments. But after his trial with psilocybin, each one of those appointments has been easy and not as burdensome as they were before the clinical trial. And it's just almost a free, a freedom of being okay with your current situation. And a lot of, a lot of people contend that psychedelics cause that, that mind frame of being okay with your present situation. Well, and we're back. And guys, thanks so much for listening to this. Um, ben, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think that Brock definitely shines some interesting light onto this subject uh, as to why it's still prevalent in today's society. I think, obviously, there's other podcasts that will talk about the the more recent, the more prevalent use. I know uh, Netflix was doing something with psychedelic drugs recently. The Joe Rogan podcast has talked about that in the past. Um but yeah, Brock definitely gives the insight into a history as to why this stuff is still prevalent, why this stuff is still around, why it hasn't gone away. Uh, I think that's an interesting aspect of all of this, right? Uh, that this was created in a very scientific setting. And these psychedelic drugs have always had this medicinal, recreational, uh, mixed past, if you could, if you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Brock really, really gets to the point uh, and talks a lot about the medicinal purposes. Um, by no means do we condone uh, any use of recreational psychedelics. Um, that's kind of your own decision. But um, 
uh, what's what's really cool and really, I mean, showcases what our podcast is doing is it presents and allows for students to present their research. I mean, quite realistically, like, man, Brock is just finished his or is fi- currently finishing his bachelor degree. Um, I myself am doing the exact same thing. And uh, man, we finally had a place to be able to really voice our research and what we found out. So I like that Brock was able to get his narrative out there and uh, really explain the things that he found out. Yeah, it's kind of funny, Josh. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a professor here during a class uh, as a master's student. And me and this other student were the only two people in this class were sitting down with the professor and he straight up asks us, why do we study history? And We try to give some profound answer as to, you know, oh, it's for the greater good of society. Oh, we try to remember what happened in the past so that we can learn for it from the future. And he kind of looked at us like naive children kind of made us feel a little stupid. He's like, you guys get to study history. And when you study history, you can study anything you want to with history. That's why we do it. If you don't have that passion, it's not not worth doing. And you can tell Brock is very passionate about this subject. Uh, I know he's said multiple times if not in this podcast, certainly multiple times uh, to me that if there is a chance that this stuff can help medicinally, why wouldn't you want to take that? And and he, he uses his research uh, to try to find that answer. Yeah, Ben, I think that's a great summary. Well, guys, thanks so much for listening. This has been Chapters and SIU see podcast um and now we'd like to give some thanks to people we do have a few special people we would like to thank josh take it away yeah first we'd like to thank the siu foundation without the funding that we got from them this podcast and the podcasting lab wouldn't be possible certainly also professor bean the chair of the history department and professor shramick the undergraduate director of the history department, both of them fundamental in getting this project off the ground. Indeed. Also, a big thank you to Professor Pinkney Benedict of the Creative Writing and English Department. Without him, uh, the bones for all of this wouldn't have been in place. A special thank you to Professor Carla Berry, the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence. Without CTE, Josh and I probably would have never met and would have never dreamed up this project. And a special thanks to Professor Carla Berry and Lind Anderson Lindbergh, uh, both of which are faculty advisors for University Innovation Fellows, which Ben and I did most of this project through. And finally, I'd like to give a personal thank you to Professor Holly Hurlbert. Uh, Professor Hurlbert was instrumental in me choosing history as a career path and a big inspiration behind Chapters Podcast. Thank you to everybody who supports us. If you would like to support us, all you have to do is follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Find us at Chapters SIU History Podcast on Facebook or Chapters SIU History Podcast on Twitter. Follow us on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you listen to our podcasts. That is Chapters SIU Student History, SIU Student History. Hey, and make sure to join us next week. Next week, we're sitting down with Sean. Sean is not only a local student, but he's doing a local history on three separate mining disasters here in southern Illinois and their impact on a national scale. So be sure to join us for that next week.